Um, hello, everyone. I'd like to welcome you to the UIA Campus Bookstore. This is Rachel Epstein, the events coordinator. And we're here to uh, welcome Brian Schmidt uh, back to Anchorage. Um, before we get going, a word about parking. Um, a few of you have asked me about the free parking. The south lot is the parking lot in front of the bookstore, the large parking lot. And there is free parking for this event and for all future UIA Campus Bookstore events. So you can keep that in mind, OK? Um, we have some um, hot water for tea, cold water, some cookies there. If you'd like to take some, please go ahead. Um, today, um, Brian Schmidt, is, I'm going to ask him to first introduce himself. Um, a lot of us uh, recognize his name for being the uh, Nobel Prize winner in physics for 2011, about his work about the accelerating universe, and his current work in southern Australia about uh, mapping the southern skies. So um, these are two themes that will probably um, entertain us at this event. There'll be time for question and answer and discussion, so please ask any question you can, your mind can think of right now. This is a great opportunity. And um, the other thing, this event is being recorded as a podcast, so um, in probably a week or so, it will be available on the UIA website, or you can contact me here at the bookstore and I can get it to you. Okay, so I don't want to waste any more time. Thank you all for coming, and Brian, if you could say a few words about yourself, and um, we'll take it from there. Okay, great. Bye. All right, well, thank you very much. Uh, it's great to be here, and it's a little, I guess, weird to come back and see all these people I know. So uh, it's uh, just sort of displaced by 27 years, I think, since uh, I finished high school. So uh, what I'm going to do today is sort of talk a little bit about uh, science in, uh, I think, sort of uh, general terms, talk a little bit about my path through science and the role uh, that my life here in Anchorage uh, in Alaska had in it. Uh, talk a little bit about the work I did and then talk a little bit about the work I'm doing now. Uh, a little bit about winning the Nobel Prize. Uh, it's going to be pretty free form. I'm giving a formal or, you know, a PowerPoint talk and things tomorrow, uh, tomorrow night. So I encourage you, that's the one where you're going to really figure out how the world works, okay? I'm going to try to explain things there. I need visual aids, unfortunately, to really explain four-dimensional universes and stuff. It's a little hard to do just by uh, talking, although if you see the talk, you may disagree and think that uh, even the visual aids don't help. So I was born um, in 1967 to very young parents. Uh, my parents were both attending University of Montana, and they were sophomores, and I was a bit of a surprise uh, at the time, and so I sort of ended up growing up with my parents as they went through university. And my father was a biologist. And so I was immersed in science from a very young age. And I remember running around with my father working on various assignments. Uh, and I would be, I was probably four or five, and I would be holding a butterfly net out the window of a car into a ditch as we drove down so my dad could collect bugs, because he had to identify as many different species as possible for one of his zoology classes. So that's one of my first memories of science. And so I was immersed in science. But like most people, my science education came through my schooling. And that's not unusual. So maybe my initial enthusiasm came from my father, but I really did learn things uh, through the school system. So I, my father went around and got a PhD at, uh, in Oregon, and then we eventually went back to Montana. And I went through primary school in uh, Helena, Montana, and then, or sorry, ele elementary school. So I go into Australian now, unfortunately, all the time. So uh, not, I still don't have much of an accent, but I do use the words. So uh, in Helena, I had what I would describe as a very good, safe education. It was uncomplicated. It's exactly what 
kindergarten through sixth grade should be. It should be a place for kids to get started and uh, learn, but also become comfortable with what and who they are. And I think we tend to sometimes overcomplicate uh, that part of our education. You really, it's a time is to get a grounding and to sort of learn how to, how to learn more than anything. Uh, we moved, my parents went through this thing where they decided they needed a tree change, and we moved up to a place called Lincoln, Montana. Lincoln, Montana is in the mountains uh, just outside of Helena, up at about 6,000 feet. It's renowned for being the coldest place in the lower 48. Uh, and so I lived there just before I moved to Alaska. And I actually was colder temperatures in Lincoln than I ever experienced at Anchorage. So minus 56 Fahrenheit in Lincoln, which is pretty cold by anyone's standard who does not live in Fairbanks. So um, it was uh, almost a relief to me uh, that we moved to Anchorage uh, in the end of my eighth grade. Uh, I came from a school of 14 people in seventh and eighth grade to Wendler here in uh, January 1981. And Wendler, for those who know, is a very big uh, seventh and eighth grade class, uh, class area. It's about 1,400 people or so, and it was quite uh, confronting to me uh, to suddenly be put into an, the other end of the world in a class that went up by a scale of 100. So it took me three or four months to readjust, and then eventually in 19, the second half of 81, uh, I attended school at Bartlett. So uh, many of my teachers here uh, from Bartlett, I see uh, Ms. Kurgis, an English teacher from 10th uh, grade. I have Mr. Mosier, who was my, never actually took science from, although he was the chemistry and physics teacher. I took cross-country running from him. And then I have Mr. Tryon, who uh, did math and geometry, but, uh, he actually was my cross-country skiing coach. Now, is there anyone who snuck in? And Mr. Wilson, I never took science from you, but you were part of the science grouping there uh, in there. And anyone else has snuck in that I haven't recognized? Just don't be shy. I want to make sure I see everyone. Um, anyway, so for me, uh, I really look at Bartlett and my time here in Alaska as one of the most critical of my upbringing because um, you know, it was during the 80s here in Alaska, and for those of us who remember the 80s here in Alaska, it was a boom time. There was lots of money, there was oil money everywhere, and the state did a very interesting thing, as they invested quite heavily in the 70s and 80s in the school systems here. And uh, so we had a very sophisticated teaching uh, faculty at Bartlett, uh, which at the time I just sort of figured that's the way high schools were like, and in subsequent years as I've traveled around, and, I think most eye-opening was at Harvard when I went to Harvard and sort of described what my high school was like. Everyone kind of looked at me confused, and these were people who had spent $30,000 going to named places in the East Coast. And uh, we, we worked hard, but we played hard, and we had a very balanced, diverse school. And I think that's what I, I found most interesting. Bartlett, uh, a military base, was about half military and then half people from all walks of life like you get in Anchorage. And then on top of that, a very uh, sophisticated way of being taught, you know, things that were, as I said, I, I talked to what people do now, and it's just a different level. The amount of English that uh, we had to read, the books we had to read, the amount of essays we wrote are just orders of magnitude, more sophisticated, more interesting, and just more onerous than what my kids, for example, do now. Uh, so I worked incredibly hard in those classes. In science, uh, we got, uh, it was sort of, we did a lot of things, but you were able to go out and do 
a whole range of activities. And so I remember one of the first real research things that I did was in my biology class, um, where we were playing around with fruit flies, as one does in your second biology class. And we had to go through and go through and uh, breed fruit, fruit flies to get two characteristics uh, at the same time, and then you got a guaranteed A. And uh, my teacher at the time, Mr. Wilson, not that Mr. Wilson, the other Mr. Wilson, who's flying in tonight from Portland, uh, had you know, said, well, you know, you can't do this, Brian. And I said, I can't do this, oh, come on. So I went in and came to the U of A library, dug out genetics books, and figured out how you could choose the right ones. And I said, well, according to this, it's guaranteed. And uh, I did it, and it worked. <laughs> so I had, suddenly, I became a real believer in science. That was the first time I had ever done a project from beginning to end, really on my own, and it worked. And so that was an incredibly exciting moment for me. And as someone who studied physics, lots of math, it happened in biology. And so I think it's always important to remember our, you know, remind ourselves that science is science. It's not just physics. Uh, we often, in Australia, we're getting into calling physics the hard science, which causes me pain because all science is hard if it's done well. And uh, physics has a, a bad reputation for being hard. It's no worse than biology. So, and, and, and all of them are equally interesting. So I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. I, I've known since I was about three I wanted to be a scientist. Uh, but I didn't know what type of scientist I wanted to be. And so when I was here, I had the opportunity. Well, I went and called up the National Weather Service because I had always been interested in doing um, in, in the weather. And I thought the idea of being a meteorologist would really appeal to me. And so I called them up and they said, sure, we'll let you come out. And so I worked for a summer here, I think uh, the summer of 1984. And uh, they treated me extremely well. But for whatever reason, when I did the meteorology, it didn't appeal to me in the way I had expected. And so I suddenly was like, geez, what am I going to do? Uh, I've, I've been thinking I was going to be a meteorologist for my entire life, and as I said, it just wasn't quite what I expected. So I went off to university saying, well, I guess I'll do astronomy because I'd be interested in doing astronomy for free, and uh, so I might as well do something I'd be willing to do for free until I figure out what I'm really going to do. Because to me, astronomy was a very impractical science that was going to be impossible to get a job in, very competitive, and uh, was just not something that looked like it had a good career prospect. And so I went off to the University of Arizona, and uh, after four years of working quite hard there, um, it was not the easiest time for me as an undergraduate, just socially. Um, I had come from what was a very sophisticated environment uh, at high school, and what was quite frankly a much less sophisticated environment at university. And so I found that very, I was a surprise. Everyone said, oh, when you go to university, you're going to be the, you know, the little fish in the big pond. But it was exactly the opposite. I was suddenly, academically, much, much more highly regarded at some level than at university than I was in high school. I was a good student in high school, but these guys will tell you that I, was, I wasn't like, you know, pitted out of the park good. I was kind of a normal, pretty good student. But, you know, I mainly got A's. But there were students who I think uh, did better than I did in my classes, um, who are still my very good friends. So. Uh, for me, what I've learned through this process is that you really do, when you're looking, especially there's a few people who are young, when you're out looking for things to do, you do want to choose something 
that interest you, because you'll do it well. And the reality is, when you go to university, you don't just learn facts. You don't just learn techniques. You learn the process of thinking, of writing, and communicating, and how to analyze problems. And that's a really important part that we forget about universities being important. Uh, but you do that really, really well if you do something you enjoy. And if you're just going through the motions, then you tend to memorize the facts and forget them. And you may get the same grade, but you're probably not going to do as well in life. And so I think my choice of going to astronomy was very good. And I have to admit, I never assumed I would become an astronomer. Even when I got into graduate school, I went off to Harvard. And uh, at Harvard, I sort of got the idea that, well, maybe this is going to work for me. Harvard was an environment very, very similar to what I experienced in high school. Very similar dynamics of people. And it's kind of weird to compare high school to graduate school at Harvard, but for me, they were actually pretty similar. Very similar times in my lives. Two of what I would describe as the happiest times in my lives. So when I was at uh, Harvard, I started working on my PhD thesis. I first started doing my real astronomy. And so one of the big problems in astronomy, which I'll describe in detail tomorrow, is that the universe is expanding. So if you think of a balloon, which you put a bunch of dots on, and you blow a balloon up, you will see that every dot moves away from every other dot. And if you blow that balloon up, the further the dots are apart, the faster they move apart. And you can go and get yourself a little tape ruler and a balloon and a magic marker and try this out at home. Uh, and so if a universe is expanding, the further away an object is, the faster it should be moving. Now, that is what Edwin Hubble measured in 1929. Uh, and so the problem we had was that if you run the universe and back, that is, you let the air out of the balloon, you can see how fast the universe is expanding now. You just run it in reverse, and that tells you how old the universe is. It tells you how long it was since everything in the universe was on top of everything else. It's sort of like if you have, you know, um, Imagine you have a train moving this way and a train moving this way, and you can figure out how far apart they are over time. It was a math uh, problem that I'm sure Mr. Tryon used to assign people. You can also go in reverse and say, well, how long until they were, you know, they crashed into each other in the past? And that's essentially what I did for my PhD thesis. I measured how fast the universe was expanding. Uh, and I did it by measuring exploding stars, which we call type 2 supernovae. There are two types of those. We'll talk a little bit about the other type in a second. Type II supernovae are the explosions of stars 10 to 100 times more massive than our sun. And it turns out these stars um, are quite rare, but when they burn their hydrogen to helium, they are then able to subsequently, when they run out of hydrogen, burn helium to carbon, and then they can go carbon to oxygen, to neon, to magnesium, to sulfur, to silicon, and to iron. Now, those of you who have had physics will remember that if you go through and you calculate uh, essentially the mass divided by the number of things in the atom, that goes to a minimum, of, so that is the lowest nuclear energy of anything is iron. And so when you try to burn iron by nuclear fusion or um, fusion, you don't get any energy out. You can do it, but it actually takes energy away from the system. It's like a refrigerator. And so these big stars which lasts for about 10 billion years, are huge. They're um, about a million times brighter than our sun, and they're fusing huge amounts of material to keep hot and keep gravity from pulling the star down into a black hole. This heat and fusion pushes out on the star and keeps it bright. And then suddenly, they, their centers become iron. 
So they got no more energy. And not only that, they start to collapse a little bit to heat up, but they don't heat up, they cool down. And that heat is providing pressure against gravity. So the more that they shrink, the cooler they get because they start making iron into heavier things. And you get this runaway where the whole center of the star collapses, forms what we call a neutron star. It's something very close to a black hole, but still not quite small enough. And these explosions, I could go through and I could um, model very accurately. I could essentially treat them like a giant incandescent light bulb and see how hot they were, and I could figure out how big they were, and that allowed me to see how many watts these things put out. And they put out a lot of watts, like, uh, well, about 10 to the 33 watts. So it's a, they're, a big, they're a big light bulb. So they're very useful. You can see them a long ways away. So for my thesis, I went out and I measured this Hubble constant. Now the Hubble constant, people have been trying to measure it for 50 years, and people were getting answers that sort of broke into saying that the universe should be about 20 billion years old, or the universe should be 10 billion years old. And I thankfully got a number right in between, which said that the universe should be about, what was like 13.8 billion years old. Um, now, when I'm measuring the age of the universe, I actually have to worry about what the universe was doing in the past. That is, when I extrapolate the universe, I'm assuming that the universe is going the same speed over and over. But the universe's speed may be changing because the universe is full of stuff. And so, for example, all the atoms of us and everything else in the universe around us pull on the universe, okay? And that will slow the universe down over time. Meaning that the universe, if you go through and figure it out, taking those of you who have had calculus, and you go through and you you know, have the universe expanding faster in the past and slowing down. That's like having the trains going faster towards each other in the past. That the universe isn't as old as you might think, right? If you have two trains coming together, and then I said, oh, but they're going faster in the past, then the crash happened earlier, or happened more recently uh, than you would have otherwise expected. And so that, when I finished my PhD thesis, I said, ah, now that would be an interesting thing to measure, because it turns out, if I measure what the universe is doing, if it's how much it's slowing down, that also tells you what's the ultimate fate of the universe. Is it going to go on forever or is it going to eventually stop? Okay, so it seemed like an interesting thing to measure. Uh, and it also told us how old the universe would be. So I was in the process of moving to Australia at this time. I was at Harvard. I met an Australian, uh, Jenny Gordon, who was studying economics, doing a PhD in economics. And uh, I remember on our first date, she said, so, what do you, uh, what type of wine do you like? And I said, wine? I grew up in Alaska. Uh, <laughs> we have beer, we have beer and we have whiskey, but wine, not a lot of. Uh, and she said, well, let's make, let's, let's get clear. If you're gonna date me, you gotta understand wine. So that turned out to be a mistake on her part because I can be kind of a wine nut. Uh, and we'll come back to that in a little bit. Uh, so, uh, my wife and I went through, at the end of our PhDs, we applied for jobs, and I got a job in Boston, and a job in Pasadena, and she got a job in Washington, D.C., and a job in Sydney. And I said, and she said, well, we didn't get married to live apart, so we're just going to have to figure out how to make this work. So she took a temporary job in Boston, and I said, I, we will get a job together, or I'll do something else. You know, Astronomy's still not very practical. I'll figure out something that will really work. So we applied for jobs, and we eventually both got very good jobs in Canberra, uh, the capital of, of Australia. Uh, I, my, me at Mount Stromo Observatory, which is the 
oldest and largest observatory in the uh, Southern Hemisphere, and my wife had a, uh, an organization in Canberra. So going off to the Australian National University Mount Stromo Observatory with a new plan, which was measure the ultimate fate of the universe. Uh, you know, in astronomy, you've got to think big. There's no sense mucking around with small questions. Uh, uh, went off and started what was a three-year program. And it was an interesting program because it was 27 years old at the time. And I was in a team of 20 people, of which I was the second youngest person in it. The youngest person, uh, Adam Reese, who eventually shared the Nobel Prize with me, was my PhD supervisor's other student. And so we were the two people who were able to run this group. And we didn't run it, uh, you know, they let us run it. And so I think the other 18 more senior people who let two of the youngest people go through and run a program of the scale that this was, and this was a big program. I mean, we had real chutzpah to go through and do this program and say, please give us you know, some large fraction of the telescope time in the world to do this interesting program. And they supported us to do that. So after three hard years, we did this measurement, <clears throat> and Adam Reese sent me an email and said, look at this figure. And I looked at this figure, and the figure said, the universe was expanding slower in the past and had sped up. Now gravity should make the universe slow down. So I didn't immediately say yeehaw, whoopee. I instead said, hmm, we, Houston, we have a problem. We've obviously made a mistake here somewhere. So there went a long period of looking at all the bits and pieces that went into the experiment. And after several months, it became clear that we couldn't find a mistake. And so in the beginning of 1998, we uh, uh, announced uh, to the world that uh, we had found that the universe was speeding up. And this is tantamount to me saying, I'm going to throw a ball up in the air, and rather than it slowing down and coming back to Earth, that it's actually going to speed up, and the further away it gets, the faster it goes, and it'll take off and go forever away. So it was a crazy, crazy thing uh, to announce. One thing that made it easier is that during this time, we were in a very strong competition with a group out of Berkeley led by Saul Perlmutter. And Saul Perlmutter's group had got exactly the same answer as we did at the same time. And so it was done independently between the two groups. So uh, 13 years later, on October 4th of this year, uh, I was uh, minding my business, cooking dinner with my wife, and I got a call from a woman with a very thick Swedish accent. And uh, I had a graduate student from the United States who uh, was very good at pulling practical jokes. And he had been making fun earlier in the day that he was getting married on the 10th of December, which turned out to be when the Nobel Prize ceremony was, which I have to admit I hadn't realized, and uh, said, that, said to me, when they call you, just tell them you're busy. And I was like, what are you talking about? He said, oh, you know, the guy's in Sweden. I said, oh, is that today? OK. So that's today. No worries. Didn't really think too much about it, and then I got this call. And so I was not thinking Nobel Prize. I was thinking, that bugger, he's, he's a very good practical jokester, as was I. I was renowned for practical jokes in high school. And uh, I was pretty impressed that he managed to dig someone with a very good Swedish accent out of the woodwork. And then an old guy got on with the Swedish accent. I was like, oh, geez, this is, this is interesting. Um, because I have to admit, I hadn't really taken it too seriously, because the woman said, is this Braunschmann? I said, yes. She said, are you sure this is Brian Schmidt? And I said, yes. This is a very important phone call from Sweden. 
And I said, I'm sure that it is. <laughs> yeah, not my best moment. Anyway, so it became very clear that this was actually not a joke. Uh, and uh, so on we went, and the Swedish Academy said, well, we're going live in six minutes. They give you six minutes notice, uh, in my case. And so I just stayed on and went through and uh, gave my instant reactions, which are, you can hear on the web page if you want to. Uh, it was a pretty amazing time, and then my phone rang just off the hook for the next three or four days. So winning a Nobel Prize is good fun, and uh, it is certainly a once-in-a-lifetime experience, which is uh, remarkable that the Swedish uh, people put so much effort into this. This really is the big event of their calendar year, and so they make you feel very special. So for now, I am um, <clears throat> continuing to work in Australia, and uh, about in 2002, I decided the supernova stuff, okay, we've done, been there, done that, let's do something new. And uh, I decided what I wanted to do was to go through and use the new technology that was developing to allow us to scan the entire sky digitally. So there were uh, photographic plates taken of the entire southern sky and northern sky. But it's only recently become possible that the charged couple devices, which uh, people will know from their digital cameras, have become large enough. And so the charge couple device camera we have built is Australia's largest digital camera. It's 268 million pixels, worth $2.5 million. And uh, it's taking pictures of the southern sky so that we can uh, take an image of essentially every part of the southern sky. And the reason we want to do that is that astronomers are not typical physicists. We go out and we're pack rats. We go through and look for shiny things, then we try to do something with them. We're not able to just sit down and say, I'm going to do this experiment this way. We have to go out and look at the universe and try to devise an experiment. And so having an information on every single object in the sky gives you a huge advantage to be able to do what you want to do. And so this experiment is really about going through and doing a census. And we can learn a lot about every object. We'll you know, we'll know if it's a galaxy or a star, and if it's a star, we'll know what, what its chemistry is and how big it is and how bright it is and more or less how far away it is. And so we can, we can do that for literally five to 10 billion stars is, is, is how many it'll be. We have the galaxy, which you never really get to see here in Alaska, goes straight overhead where I live. And so it's quite a sight if you ever go to uh, Australia or to South, uh, Southern America and you look up and you say, God, the sky really looks amazing here. It's actually because the sky is more amazing in the southern sky. Uh, not that there's nothing. We don't have the, uh, the aurora like you have here, but uh, um, it is the galaxy goes straight overhead. It's quite remarkable. Anyway, so um, reflections, uh, I guess when I look back at my life, um, I have had, you know, I've had in some sense an unremarkable life, but it has been a very good life. And that's really what, um, the good news is that, uh, you know, if you want to win a Nobel Prize, you need to be, have some luck, but you just need to really have kind of a normal life that builds you up to do that. And so, I, I, I guess from my perspective, incredibly grateful to uh, the effort that uh, Alaska spent in educating me and my peers. If I go through and look at my friends, I'm still quite close friends with many and many of my colleagues, and we are, an amazingly successful group of people with all sorts of people from, you know, people who sing at the New York Metropolitan Opera to major CEOs of international companies, doctors, lawyers, whatever. 
Indeed, if you look at my cohort, uh, we came, because I know everyone, came from a very normal input into high school, but we, if we are certainly not a normal output of a high school. That is, it's, a, it's an unusual group. And I think you have to look at that and say that was the education system. So when I moved to Australia in, um, in uh, 1994, uh, one of the first things I did was I flew into Singapore. Now Singapore is this little country just north of Australia. And in 1994, it was, I described it as sort of a second world country. It wasn't first world, it wasn't third world, it was sort of in between. If you go to Singapore now, it feels second world everywhere else because it is just so far ahead. Everything is just amazing there. They have some of, one of the highest incomes per uh, GDP, you know, per capita. And if you look at what caused it, well, they invested heavily in education. So from my perspective, you know, educating, especially K through 12, that's the place where you can really get the, the best outcome, is immeasurably good for a society. And it's something we need to remember um, as times are tough right now. That's the place where you don't want to skip, even when times are tough. And so I hope that, uh, at least in Australia, where I'm able to have some influence now, I've been working very hard to ensure that we you know, as many kids get as good an education as I did, um, because I think it just makes a huge difference. The reality is, if I would not have had as good of education, I certainly would not have won the Nobel Prize. And so I think that's uh, where I will stop for now, but we should have time for lots of questions. Okay? Thank you. My teachers will also say I was a good talker in class in the old days, too. Yes? In the back. All right, and so how do we see the galaxy if we live in the galaxy? So our galaxy is a collection of about 100 billion stars, 100 billion, so that's a lot of stars. But as I will uh, illustrate, most of the galaxy tomorrow night is empty space, okay? So when you see a star, it is a tiny pinprick of light that even with the most powerful telescope on Earth, it's still a pinprick of light when you look at it. They're so small. All right, so the reason you can see is you're embedded in a bunch of pinpricks of light, and so you just see right through all the empty space in the galaxy, and you see each individual pinprick of light. And it's only when you look right into the Milky Way where those pinpricks begin to blend. And so when you look into the Milky Way, that's where you're looking. If you think of our, our galaxy as being, think of it as two fried eggs top to bottom, and we're looking right into the center, right through the middle of that fried egg when we see the Milky Way. And it turns out you can't see through the Milky Way. It just looks milky, and if you put a telescope there, you see lots and lots of stars, but there's also dust. And so you don't see all of the Milky Way, you only see the part around us where we're not obscured by dust. Uh, and so ultimately that's what comes through. But when we look out, there's no dust looking out of the egg, and so we can just see on to all the galaxies beyond us. Good question. Yeah. What is dark energy? Okay, well, the short people, I don't want to give away too much of the talk for tomorrow night, or no one will come see it, but dark energy is the stuff that we say is causing the universe to speed up. So 
Dark, whenever astronomers use the word dark, dark means a euphemism for I don't understand, okay? So I don't understand energy is dark energy. We also have I don't understand matter, dark matter. Uh, and those turn out to be 96% of the universe, these things. Um, and the reason we can't, we don't understand them is they're very difficult to detect. We can only see their effects at the largest distances by gravity. And the reason we think we can't detect them is they literally are not things, they're not atoms. It's stuff that does not, as we would say, interact with normal material. So the reason I can see you is because your light and photons are interacting with you and I can see you. This stuff, photons, light does not interact with dark matter. It does not, not interact with dark energy. So it's very, very hard to detect. So the best guess we have for what this stuff is, is energy that is part of space itself. Einstein's equations of relativity, general relativity, his most famous work, but he did not win a Nobel Prize for it, so Nobel Prizes are not the only thing. We always say that Einstein had moved beyond the Nobel Prize when he did this work. Um, and those equations say if there is energy that is tied to space itself, it will cause gravity to push rather than pull. And when we go through and stick that stuff into his equations, we find that our observations and every single observation made since 1998 needs about 73% of the universe to be this energy. And it works. So we, we lie a lot about in science. We often say science is about absolute truth, about absolute facts. Absolute. Religion is about absolute truth and absolute facts. Science is exactly the opposite. Science is a way of understanding the universe that is inevitably wrong in some way. And so the way we think, for example, gravity works is based on a set of equations which we then test. And we test, we test, we test. And as long as something is seen to be correct, it is correct. As soon as it is shown to be in error, then it suddenly becomes in error. So Newton's equations of gravity stood the test of time for 300 years. But it wasn't until Einstein came along and said, well, why don't you look at this and see if you get the same answer? And it turned out Newton got the wrong answer. So we knew that Newton's laws of gravity, while pretty good, and they worked really well for 300 years, and I do almost all of my work when I, when I you know, do solve for gravity, I use Newton's equations because they're a lot easier. But we know that they're not perfect. And so there came Einstein's theory of general relativity. We know that relativity does not work with quantum mechanics. And it may well be that this dark energy is born of quantum mechanics. We're not really sure. And so it could be that we're seeing somehow in this measurement we've made where general relativity is breaking down in some way. We don't really know. So it's a big thing what dark energy is, and I've told you pretty much what everyone knows. And it, and it hasn't changed much in the last 13 years. Don't be shy. Yep. So why on earth is the best survey why in heaven would I Okay, so um, so physics is uh, is an interesting time right now. Um, physics, you know, underpins the basic workings of all around us. And so it's really broken into a few 
interesting areas. Astronomy is at the frontier of you know, what's out there in the universe, and it's still quite a frontier science. But there's some really interesting things in material sciences and physics that are coming in, and how quantum mechanics is playing with materials, because we're now able, through new modern technology, to fabricate things at the nanometer scale. So I don't know if you guys saw about three months ago, these guys at MIT, by fabricating tiny little grooves in glass, were able to make essentially um, you know, uh, a surface which nothing will stick to. So if you, you could just spray water onto it, beat up and go away. So it's like putting Rain-X, but it's just part of the glass. And there is lots of interesting things within physics that are in that realm. Uh, the other reason why you want your, uh, you know, you might want your son or daughter to go into something like physics, if they enjoy it, and I must say, if you don't enjoy physics, don't do it, but if you like it, don't be scared, is that if you go through and look at physicists, uh, especially if you get a PhD in physics, they're among the highest paid dis discipline of anything, up there with doctors and lawyers and people. They have the lowest unemployment rate of just about any discipline. And in a climate like that, having lots of pay and low unemployment rate is good. Now, it doesn't mean you're going to be working as a professor like me. You may be working in industry doing something. But the skills you learn in physics are really useful in a whole wide range of areas. And one of the things that I am very strongly uh, cognizant of, and some of my colleagues aren't so, is, is that we train people to think and to do. We do not, I do not train anyone to become an astronomer. I train them to think about astronomy, but I know that 75% of the people who you know, work for me are going to end up doing something else. And normally, they are very successful at whatever they do. Uh, and so it's, it's actually quite an interesting field to go into. But it does train people in skills that uh, are useful in other disciplines. I'll give you an example. Someone on our high-Z high team, Al Dirks, uh, was a physicist. And he sort of, at the end of our project, he said, well, OK, that's fine, but you know, this isn't working for me. And I said, well, what works for you? And he says, I really like immunology. And I said, well, go do immunology. So he went and went into a lab and started at the bottom. And, but he was a really good physicist. And they had all these problems in immunology, uh, which required essentially the, the skill set of a physicist, of how you data mine, how you computer program, how you go through and put things together in an instrumented way. And when I met the, the Nobel Prize winners this year in biology, they're like, oh, yeah, we, you know, this, this guy could win the Nobel Prize. So this guy who transferred out of my group could potentially win a Nobel Prize in biology using his skill set as a physicist. So it's a really uh, very useful set to do. But you got to love it. There's no sense just doing it if it's, oh, I want to do this or do something else. You, you need to have that passion to build up that skill set. Ah, well, so this is my son. I have a 17-year-old son. Uh, when I say, so what do you want to do? And he looks at me and says, I don't want to work as hard as you and mom. I'm like, okay, well. Um, so it is really a challenge. I, I, I'll be honestly, I haven't figured out the answer to this question because I'm someone who's very passionate about lots of things. I was passionate about my sports. I was passionate about the band. I was passionate about drama. I was passionate about my... my, my um, work that I did. So I'm just naturally that way. Uh, my advice is for them to try lots of things and see what they like. And you know, you got to get them out and just trying things and hope that something clicks with them. Uh, but you know, you can't force it on someone. And so I'm, I'm letting him go at his own pace. But I have to admit, 
I've said, you, in Australia, everyone stays at home to go to university, which is completely the opposite to here. And I've said, you have to get out of the home because I will drive you nuts trying to live your life for you if you stay at home. And uh, we'll see what happens. Uh, but I'm afraid, you know, um, you can't force passion on someone. They've got to find it themselves. And give them patience, I guess. But it does require patience. Sure. Well, what we have done, so I mean, I, I obviously get to see the education. I look, I have many friends in California, which I, really is a sad thing for me to see what's, what they're doing there. But it is a problem. Uh, um, in Australia, we are going through a time that is not unlike Alaska when I lived here in the 1980s. It's, you know, we're a commodity fueled boom. Uh, we have not yet run out of coal, although we're trying our hardest to get rid of it as fast as we can. And uh, we have not unfortunately set up yet a uh, something like a permanent fund, uh, which is something that uh, seemed kind of crazy back in the 70s and 80s what it does, but I think has the ability to fund things like education in the future, which will, I think, ultimately bear out. Uh, in Australia, I think the problem we have in Australia with education, and Australian education outcomes are quite a bit better on average than American ones are right now, but they're going backwards. Uh, at the same rate as Americans. And uh, if you look, Australia has spent a lot of money on education. The difficulty, I think, is that it hasn't necessarily been targeted very well. One of the things that the, the money has been spent on is not ensuring you have good English, math, and science teachers. It's been spent on having quite complex curricula that cover huge diversity of things which are not your basic subjects. And so, especially in years 10, 11, and 12, the last three years, students are no longer allowed, no longer required to, to take math or to take science or even in some cases English in their last year. And to me, that's a problem. The other thing they've done is they've, there are some things that are, uh, if you're a teacher you may not like, but uh, I'll tell it to you anyway, is all the, the research shows that if you're going to spend money on, in education, you don't care that much about buildings. You don't care that much about class size. What you care about is having highly educated teachers. And so if you're going to spend your money, you're much better having fewer, more highly educated teachers than more teachers in smaller class size. So as we as parents often push, give us smaller class size. They look good. I know, having seen large classes, they're chaotic and things. But if you put a good teacher, I mean a highly competent teacher, not just a good teacher, but highly competent teacher and give them 30, teach, 30 people, you win twice because they're hitting more people with their expertise 
Uh, and it just, if you just look at the statistics, it's, it's remarkably better. And so Singapore spends huge amounts of money. So a Singaporese uh, teacher is a very well-paid person. But they have large class sizes as well. They would typically be 32, which we would think 26, I don't know, what's, what's a class size in Anchorage now? Pardon, how many? Yeah, but I will also say Anchorage tends to spend more money on their teachers than most school districts in America, and if you don't believe me, move south for a bit and see what's going on. So I think, I think that's the correct way to do it. The incorrect way is to have poorly paid teachers in class sizes of 32, okay? Because in the end, if you look at the OECD studies, is that when you put money into education, it increases your, your growth of your economy a lot. It's the best single indicator of future growth, is how much money is being put in education. And so you're being foolish. If you don't put money into education, you are damning the future of the country. And so you know, that's the place not to save money. There's lots of places we can save money. And you know, letting the buildings get a little more ragged is better than skimping on the teachers. You know, it's nice to spend the money, but at some point you do need to make ends meet. But education is not the place to skimp. All right, so uh, cosmological constant with respect to, with, okay, so, so I'm gonna, um, so the, the question, this cosmological constant is what Einstein came up with as this energy tied to space. Now one of the things that we, we try to do is to test that cosmological constant. And one of the fundamental things that we get in a universe which is expanding, um, it's that space is being created. Now this stuff is funny because it's supposed to be part of space itself. So imagine I make space, then I make some of this stuff. And so if I have gravity, for example, atoms, when I make space, I don't make more atoms. So I get a lesser effect of atoms as I make space bigger, and this stuff stays the same. So this stuff really, once it gets going, it just takes over. And as it takes over, that causes redshift and causes more and more redshift over time. And one of the interesting things about this stuff is that it can make things redshift so quickly that things I can see now will literally disappear in the future. So it is a remarkable substance that we can then test and say, well, are the predictions that it makes of how much stuff is redshifted or stretched versus how far away these objects are, do we see that? Or, you know, in nature? And the answer is yes, as near as we can tell. It predicts things to uh, within a percent, and we can't measure things better. We can ask the question, do, are the redshifts the same that direction as that way? And the answer is they are. And do we have uh, galaxies and things grow? It turns out that the rate that you can build up a galaxy depends on this stuff. And everything we do keeps on getting the same answer. It looks like this stuff. So it seems that it does exactly what it should do. Um, but, you know, we're scientists, we keep testing it. The problem we have as a discipline is the experiments to test it are so expensive now that uh, we're going to run into a problem where we're just going to have to shake our heads and say, let's do something else. Because there's a lot of things in astronomy we can do besides dark energy, and some of the experiments are quite cheap. 
So for example, my experiment to discover this, my budget was $8,000. That's what I spent on it, plus my salary. But, yeah. Other questions? Yep. String theory, yes. Um, so string theory is a way that people are trying to combine gravity and quantum field theory. And you do this by invoking 11 dimensions, and I don't even understand four, so 11 is a lot. The people who do this are mathematicians, and it turns out that they really did not like a universe full of dark energy. To make their theory work, they have to say that there is an infinite number of universes, one in 10 to the 500, so that's a one with 500 zeros behind it. Just to be clear, there are less, that's, that's 10 to the 400 times more electrons there are in the universe, so it's a lot, it's a big number. Um, you need to have that many to find the one we live in. It. And for me, that means, well, I guess that disproves your theory. To them, it means, well, thank you. You've told us the universe we live in. And that's just a sociological thing we get around. We'll see. Um, at this point, I would say string theory is struggling by most people's version. You've got the smartest people in the world working on this. They haven't made a lot of progress. So that's the, that's the frustration with, with this. You know, Einstein spent his last many, many years trying to combine all the forces of nature. He never succeeded. And uh, it's not at all clear to me um, that we're going to be able to succeed in my lifetime. It's hard. Yep. Yep. Well, it hasn't really, it turns out. So it's one of the things we can test. So we do have to assume, one of the things that we assume about uh, our, our universe is that physics is well behaved uh, and that we're not in a special place in the universe. And, but we have to test those assertions. So at this point, we go through, we go back, and we measure what's the speed of light, how does quantum mechanics work, all those things. And as near as we can tell, even a long, long time ago, things work exactly as they do now. And we have something that's a very good indicator. Right after the creation of the universe, right after the Big Bang, uh, when the universe was very hot, it was a giant nuclear reactor. And it took hydrogen and it burned about a quarter of it into helium. Now, it turns out we can measure very accurately how much deuterium, how much helium uh, the universe made, how much lithium it made. And when we do those measurements, it tells us very precisely how physics worked when the universe was about a second old. And it turns out if you tweak it even a tiny little bit, all that goes away. It's only in the universe we, we live in, with the rules the same as it is today, that we can reproduce you know, how much helium there is in the universe. So we've tested things remarkably well. And that's, you know, when the universe is a second old, it was like the center of the sun. So that's a big extrapolation. Uh, a little bit. So the question is, uh, when I go and map out the southern sky, uh, do, we do, um, do we use stuff from the International Space Station? So <clears throat> one of the first things I have to do is the International Space Station is really bright. So we have it probed in, so whenever it goes overhead, we look somewhere else, because it leaves a big streak through our, our images. Uh, so really, the International Space Station has some observatories on it. And 
um, one of the observatories can potentially find little flashes of light that we might be able to go and look and see what they saw. Um, the other thing is that when we find interesting objects in the sky, we can have them look at it. So it's sort of synergistic. So when you look at the sky, you never know what you're gonna find. So I'll tell you a little story of something. We're out looking for some of the youngest, the, the oldest stars in our galaxy. And we tell that because at the time of the Big Bang, the universe made hydrogen and helium and really nothing else. So by, we look for stars that have almost no iron in them, which are made in these supernovae, which happened you know, after the universe was a bit older, we can find the really young stars. And when we found, we were looking for these things, and we found some, lots of young ones with this new telescope, we found something that's really funny. It's an object that's incredibly hot, like hundreds of thousands degrees. So hundreds of thousands degrees, very hot for a star. And then we noticed it had two little blobs that are a long ways away from it, perfectly symmetric. And when we looked at it carefully, this thing is whizzing around at thousands of kilometers, you know, thousands of miles per second. Uh, and so what we think, we only found this about three weeks ago, is that this is some black hole thing with probably a little star that's getting munched on. And what we're seeing are, um, it's shooting out jets um, going out. So you never really know, but this is the type of thing, if, it, if it's what we think it is, and it's, it's only two or three weeks old, so we'll see. That's the type of thing you might have the International Space Station look at, because it has the ability to look at different wavelengths of stuff than, than we do. So I was, when the opera results came out, um, I had just won the Nobel Prize. And the, so the opera results were the faster than light neutrinos where they were shooting neutrinos of a very specific type from um, CERN down to a detector in Italy. Now neutrinos are, are things that will go right through the earth. They don't typically uh, stop for anything. They don't interact very much. And so, this measurement seemed to show that uh, these things were going faster than the speed of light. Now, I have to admit I was skeptical, but not dismissive. Many of my colleagues were just dismissive. They said, it's got to be wrong. Well, I've been there. I've done that. A lot of people said we had to just be wrong as well. So I thought it was really interesting. And I had a group um, fr from the UK doing a documentary. And I said, stop filming me. Go out. And I want, I, you should just got to go out and interview scientists around the world right now about what they think, because I think that would be a great um, look into how science works. And I would say the community was sort of 50-50. Most people dismissed it immediately, and half like me said, well, it's probably wrong, but I think we need to look at it. And so I was very interested to see what was going on. Um, in the end, it turned out to be a mistake. Uh, and people were resigning and stuff, but you know, if, if I resigned every time I made a mistake, I would have never, I would have quit I would have quit high school, so, uh, you know, you make, you make mistakes, so I actually think that uh, that, was, that, was, that, was, that was a shame. Um, I don't, I think it's okay. I thought it was interesting. I thought it was, it was quite interesting. I was kind of disappointed that um, they felt so ashamed that they needed to go and do something else. So, anyway, they did their best. They made a mistake. We found it. We move on. That's the way science works. Cold fusion, same deal. Um, the difficulty with cold fusion is there wasn't completely clear whether or not they had completely been honest about their mistake. So that's the problem. And, um, you know, it, it also depends on the mistake, whether or not it's, it's a 
oh, geez, you know, on this chain of 12,000 things, there was one that we had a little glitch in it and was reflecting a signal, and there's that. Or you have just a genuine stupid mistake that people consider to be, you know, at a level of incompetence that's not allowed. And so, you know, you get judged. You know, I they didn't, uh, they didn't go to jail or anything. Uh, I think people felt that their work was sufficiently sloppy that it uh, was more than just a subtle mistake of a cable and a huge long chain of things, which was very, very different. One was a subtle mistake. I think one wasn't very subtle. Why can't things go faster than the speed of light? Uh, I don't have an answer for you. It just seems to be the way it is. So. When we went through uh, in the 1890s, there was an experiment where they went through and they measured the speed of light as the direction the Earth was going around the sun, and they did it the other direction. And when they did that experiment, they got the same answer. It came back. You know, if you if you put a mirror on a distant mountain and you put it that way, well, let's see, I'm up in Alaska, it's north, so I need to go that way and that way. Okay. You would expect, wouldn't you, if I had a snowball, which I used to do to get my friends, I'd get in the back of a car and throw it where the car was going, my snowball would be go faster this way and slower if I was going the other way. So they were very surprised when they did this and this, and they found that light had exactly the same speed in both directions, even though the Earth was moving in, in one direction and not the other. It didn't make any sense. So it's really an observed fact. And uh, Einstein's theory of special relativity, gave you E equals mc squared, was born out of the idea that you need to have, as an observed fact, that light just is the same speed. Now, if we get some overarching theory um, that tells us why, that doesn't really exist yet. Um, it uh, tells you that it's the way the world is. It turns out it's kind of hard to construct a universe that doesn't, full of contradictions, uh, if information travels in different speeds in the different directions. So it ultimately comes as uh, it's the way the world is and it sort of needs to be that way for you not to get two answers to problems. You know, So it's ultimately what it comes down to. Yeah. Yes. So it turns out that when the universe expands, it's not that you are moving away from me. It's that space is being created between us. And so think of it as, you know, I have a rubber band and I pull on the rubber band. And, as I'm, and, and, and think of that space getting bigger and bigger. And imagine me having, uh, you know, a, uh, a rubber band which I stretch the same amount. And I'm able to do that over a huge long distance. At some point, when I do that stretching, the, uh, the space will be stretching faster than the speed of light. Essentially, you can create space faster than light can travel through it. It doesn't mean anything's moving faster than the speed of light from each other. So it's a subtlety of general relativity, a little different than special relativity. I warn you out? Okay. Yeah. Well, it, it, you know, ultimately the reason we do it 
um, comes about for two reasons. Uh, I think the, ultimately the reason we do it is because it makes financial sense, believe it or not, but let me get there first, okay? So when you look out and you look at what appeals to humanity, if I go and see third graders and I start asking them astronomy questions, every single third grader is interested, 100%. No one bored. By 10th grade, there are people who are bored. A lot of people are bored, but at, you know, and so I think that what's our place in the world is almost like art or music. It is part of what makes us human. We want to understand where we are, how things work. And so it satisfies an innate curiosity. So there's a reason why we do it. The question is why do we spend so much money doing it? Uh, and we spend, you know, we spend a fair bit of money. We don't spend anything compared to healthcare, you know, for every dollar spent in astronomy, you probably spend $1,000 on healthcare or $10,000. It's, it's, it's an order of magnitude. And it should be that way. I'm not advocating it being any different. Uh, but ultimately, if you look at how science works, we build up on the fundamental, and that knowledge allows us to do more and more complicated things. And so the work that Newton did back in you know, the 1600s was all about understanding our place in the universe. It was astronomy, Galileo, based on Galileo. And yet, that underpinned the whole development of scientific method. That underpins all of modern technology. And so everything we have here today, in this room, essentially everything, is traced back the way it's made to Newton and Galileo, ultimately, who inspired Newton. And so we do it because it's the building blocks. And you say, okay, but what, do you, what have you done for me lately? which is a per pretty reasonable uh, question. Well, the answer is indirectly uh, a fair bit, more than you might realize, CCDs and your digital cameras. Turns out in Australia, radio astronomers uh, developed Wi-Fi. It's the most valuable patent in astronomy. So all, internet, all of Wi-Fi, so um, wireless internet, came about as a development of some of my colleagues in Australia who were trying to look for evaporating black holes predicted by Stephen Hawking. And they had to be able to take radio signals that are bouncing around the galaxy and put them together. And it turns out that when you have a room here and you have radio signals bouncing around, you've got to put those signals together. And so they used the algorithm they developed for astronomy and applied it to internet and voila, Wi-Fi. Uh, World Wide Web came out of people at CERN going through and, uh, and uh, trying to communicate properly. So you get these weird spin-offs when you don't tell people what to do. You say, here's a problem, think about it. You know, we're not gonna shoot you if you get the answer, so you're allowed to do any idea you want. And so that's a fundamental construct of how technology develops, is having curiosity-driven um, research at the bottom where people are just trying to work out questions where there are no rules of how to go. You're allowed to do anything. And that seems to be a very successful mix of how to invigorate new ideas into technology. Because if you only work on things that you know, then you only develop what you know. So if I tell you, make a new toaster, well, you're gonna make a new toaster. You're not gonna invent Wi-Fi, it turns out, because that's not what you're doing. So I think that's why we do it. it ultimately, it's an underpinning that uh, keeps new ideas bubbling up through, uh, through science. And it seems crazy, but we did the experiment where we didn't do it. It's called the Dark Ages, and you know, I don't think we want to go there. We didn't do art at that time either, so probably a bad time, bad thing to do. Yep.
Um, so there's certainly uh, many societies have things related to it. Uh, certainly um, uh, Indians had the whole idea of the universe being created out of something and literally expanding in their folk in their uh, the folklore from back well before 1000 AD. Uh, but you know it's uh, in terms of there's no easy way to observe it. It's you know it's going to be aesthetic for them of how to understand in the same way. You know we credit the Greeks a lot for a lot of astronomy and some of it was right, but wherever they didn't base things on observation, they had things they had concepts. They weren't really scientific, but they were their way of understanding the universe. And so, you know, we always have concepts where we say, these are the observations, and then we have to extrapolate. And so I would say that uh, wherever we extrapolate, we're going into where we're going beyond what we can test. Then we're in that regime where, you know, um, we are in uh, something similar to, uh, you know, it's metaphysical. And so indigenous cultures, you know, usually their sky was metaphysical rather than direct observations. And there were, you know, abilities to track planets and things which were um, actually based on a flawed system of things going around, the, you know, the earth rather than the sun, but it worked. Uh, and then they eventually showed that was wrong. But so I, I said, sort of a metaphysical thing. I said, there are things that are actually uncannily resembling, but I would say that's probably more from aesthetic reasons rather than any other reason. There are a lot of them. It really depends on what you want. So if you want uh, you know, string theory, there's uh, Brian Greene's Elegant Universe. Um, if you want something on, um, uh, there's a book called The Arrow of Time by Sean Carroll that uh, he was my graduate office mate. I don't get any royalties. Uh, that talks about uh, sort of how time and things work. A real astronomy book, um, I'm just trying to think of, they all tend to be, um, you know, the original Cosmos series came out and had a book with it, and that was pretty comprehensive. The problem is 25 years out of date. So Neil Tyson uh, de Grave, whose wife is Alaskan, by the way, uh, so the, the guy, the astronomer who's doing the new Cosmos, uh, I'll be interested to see if he puts out a new comprehensive book on that. Uh, most of the books are pretty reasonable, honestly, because it's a very competitive field out there, and the, if it's a publisher you recognize, then I promise you it's going to be a pretty good book, because it's extraordinarily competitive to get content. They might you write three titles and, um, you know, three chapters before you can write it out and stuff. So it, it changes very quickly the, you know, what's in and what out. So as I said, most of the ones I have seen have been pretty high quality. Uh, I could go down and sort through it and tell you which ones, but I probably need to see the shelf right now to, to tell you. Yep. The biggest astronomers of all time? Ooh, uh, well, it, I mean, Albert Einstein, if you consider him an astronomer, he's definitely out number one by a long, long ways. I'm a real big fan of a guy by the name of Georges Lamatre. He was a Belgian monk who discovered that the universe was expanding before Hubble did. Showed He was quite eccentric fellow. He showed his work to, uh, to Einstein, and Einstein told him, 
Sir, your mathematics is fine, but your understanding of physics is abominable. Uh, that was when he told Hubble that he thought that the universe was expanding and therefore must have been created in what he called a primeval atom, which we'd also think of as the Big Bang. So uh, that amount of insight back in 1927 by a guy who was a Belgian monk who had done his PhD thesis sort of all on his own, I find quite remarkable. Um, so he would be one of my favorites. Of modern cosmologists, there is uh, an astronomer by the name of Jim Peebles. Jim Peebles was the guy who figured out that when Penzias and Wilson looked at the sky uh, with their feed horn from Bell Labs in the 19, early 1964, he figured out that that was the afterglow of the Big Bang. And he's done, he's still around. He's uh, grew up in um, Manitoba um, and very good tall Canadian guy. He must be 75 now. Uh, but he has done a huge amount of work in cosmology. Um, he's won most of the prizes that are on offer, but probably won't ever win a Nobel Prize just because he did lots of great work, but he didn't make a huge discovery. He could have easily won the Nobel Prize for the Big Bang and you know the cosmic microwave background, but that was his real big thing. But he's been someone who's just done huge amounts of stuff in this field. Are we done? I can go on all day. I can, I can keep talking. But, pardon? Oh, the wine. I forgot to tell you about the wine. Oh, okay. That'll be how I finish. Um, so, in, when I moved to Australia, obviously my wife told me wine is important. And so, after three or four years in Australia, we moved out to a farm and I saw this new place and I said, geez, there is a perfect place to put a vineyard on this north-facing slope. North is good in Australia, it's not like uh, Alaska. And uh, the, uh, she said, uh, I thought we were gonna remodel the new house we were bought on. But anyway, we didn't remodel the house, we put a, a vineyard in. <coughs> and so I have since uh, 2000 been uh, growing grapes and making wine. And uh, so when the Nobel, I always said that uh, I'm known as an astronomer who makes wine within astronomy circles and as a winemaker who does astronomy within winemaking circles. And uh, when I won the Nobel Prize, uh, the last thing that they asked me was, and how's the 2011 vintage? Which uh, was kind of a surprise. And so I brought a bottle for the King of Sweden. And uh, when I received, the, the big thing the Swedes wanted to know is, what does the king say to you when he's on stage and hands you your award? And what he says to you, in my case, was, Congratulations on behalf of the Swedish Academy for the Nobel Prize in Physics in 2011, and thank you very much for the bottle of wine. It was lovely. <laughs> so, I will stop there. All right, well, I'll hang around, and if you have any last-minute questions that you're scared to ask, please come up and ask them. Thank you very much. And I hope to see most of you for the full thing, uh, with some repeats of what we just did here, but better graphics. Um, it's at the convention center, the, the new one, the one that didn't exist when I was here, um, 8 o'clock tomorrow, so should be hopefully okay. I'll do my best. <laughs>